Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. Uh, I feel really honored to host Manfred Ket de Fries, uh, management thinker and currently also a um, psychoanalyst. I had the pleasure to get to know his work and I should have done it for almost two or three decades because it would help me, helped me a lot uh, with the recently uh, Financial Times article. Uh, where he has uh, very good insights, namely on his book, on his last book of the 50 that I've launched so far, uh, The CEO Whisper. As all the listeners know, I'm completely passionate about scaling up and helping CEOs and their leadership teams to scale companies. And it was impossible to not understand uh, and see a lot of patterns on the work that I do with CEOs. And sometimes more than an advisor and a coach, uh, I feel that I need more tools and uh, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis might have helped me a lot trying to help those CEOs to, to be successful and have an impact on them. So Manfred, welcome again to the show. It's really a pleasure to have you with us today. The same, it's a pleasure. So what, what should I talk about? Because I <laughs> talk about many different topics. I know, and you have amazing I, stories. I, I can introduce myself. I, uh, I teach at a place called in the in the forest of Fontainebleau, surrounded by wild boar, uh, which is the big, one of the biggest forests in France. And they have uh, INSEAD, they have uh, also places in uh, Singapore, a very big campus, and one in Abu Dhabi, and now also a small thing in San Francisco. I'm, uh, I have the chair of uh, leadership development and organizational change. I used to be the director of INSEAD's Global Leadership Center. Uh, I'm also an associated with a consulting firm that is very narcissistically called the Cats to Freeze Institute. <laughs> uh, but I'm actually very, ten, uh, it's, not, it's not run by me anymore. I mean, I, I clone myself. I, uh, and I run at INSEAD, um, which I probably is the longest running program by one professor. It's, uh, I sometimes call it my CEO recycling program. I take 21 C-suite executives and they come for four weeks, not in one stretch, by the way, in four modules. And I try to, and it is a program which has been very important to me because as opposed to teaching MBAs or whatever, where you have a sense what you're going to do, in this program, I have no idea what they're going to do. I mean, I'm a product of the, among others, of the Harvard Business School, which is the, the mecca of case studies. And wow. so I, and myself, I've written probably more than 100 case studies, but in this program, uh, you would be, Mike, you would be the case study, which is much more exciting because you're sitting, you're writing in class. It's also very scary because it's much easier to talk about somebody else than... Uh, so what happens when in this program that people, it's a tipping point program, people make major decisions in their life. Of course, in the beginning, they talk about their organizations and their leadership style and their teams and whatever, but eventually they might talk about their grandparents. And, and, and so I'm trying to, as a psychoanalyst, uh, I have two heads. One is, I guess I combined the dismal science, which was Keynes' description of being an economist, because at one point in time I was an <laughs> economist, with Freud's dismal, the, the impossible profession, he talked about the, that's psychoanalysis, an impossible profession. So. <laughs> I, I, I have the clinical head, so it helps me a little bit to make uh, more sense of the very complex creatures that are executives. In that, that respect, 
real crazy people are easier because their neuroses are all out there, but executives <laughs> are much better in hiding it. And I would say my slogan is everybody is normal until you know them better. Exactly. That's, uh, that's very, uh, it's, it's actually very true. And uh, people are quite complex and to make some sense out of them. But anyhow, in that program, I try to create tipping points. And they may be, uh, and of course, um, when you think about MBA students, they they have to make usually two major decisions. One is uh, it has to do with uh, choice of partner, which, as you know, we don't do very well. And the other one is choice of career. And also they do not so very, very well. Mm -hmm. Of course, they have now more portfolio career. So <laughs> and if they would have a little bit more insight about themselves, that would, uh, and that's the reason, I think part of the reason coaching uh, is so popular is, uh, you know, that trying to help people a little bit to guide them a little bit in uh, in that direction i was in, i was responsible at INSEAD. i started a program called it was originally called consulting and coaching for change which now called the executive masters in change management which is a very popular it's a midlife it's a midlife program so uh, and and i'm very proud of the fact that it's probably the only program but probably by design at the business school where you have uh, Fifty percent women, which is very rare. Mm -hmm. Look at the normal. Uh, Absolutely. But partially, of course, has to do with many women at midlife might decide that she, they want another kind of career, and of course, people in human resource management also flock to that kind of program, and many of them are women. So that's uh, that's not a program. It's not the, my recycling quote unquote program. It's actually called the challenge of leadership, developing your emotional intelligence. So I I blabbered on here. So. Um, what what other questions do you have to ask me? I interviewed. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really an honor. Let's I will try to leverage you in the best way possible, so we can help uh, scale up CEOs and corporate CEOs to to really be able to scale with your um, experience. So we always cover on the show for for our listeners, uh, as you know, that three critical principles to to scale a company. Number one is radical focus. Number two is world-class leadership. And number three, the culture of execution. And I'm adding to this one, the culture of execution operating system or OS for, for, for the listeners that have been following us for a while. I will not go uh, exactly by the interview roadmap with these principles because I feel that you can add so much, uh, much, much more than those three points. So I, I will go a little bit ad hoc on, on our conversation um, today. But I think I will ask something that every single executive and even CEOs with their investors might face, which is it's it's very difficult to have an honest conversation within a leadership team forum, even within a board forum. And because some of those executives are have the fear to tell the truth to the CEO and even to their peers. And I realized that one of the things that we need to do right to scale up quickly a company is to having the right people on the right seats, as Jim Collins would say in the bus, for each stage um, of growth. But what I've realized, it is even more important to make them a team, uh, as um, Patrick Lencioni would say, right, to, to really have trust, accountability, commitment, uh, attention to results, uh, etc. And this is very difficult if the CEO is not able to open up and the executives are not able to open up and they want to show that they know everything and that they are perfect 
and uh, that everything is perfect and everything is under control. So what would be your advice to any executive that is sitting down, is seeing a strange dynamic in their leadership team, but they don't have the courage to show up and face the reality with their CEOs and their peers? Most, uh, Mike, most top executive teams are natural acts because of the power dynamics. Of course, to make to really build a team, you have to hire me. That will take care of that. <laughs> I don't have the time to do that. So um, that's, uh, I mean, I, I, I try to clone myself a little bit through my uh, different programs and also right. uh, and the association with consulting firm, but that's not good enough. No, I, um, uh, I, 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 I always say, give me some neurotic executive team and I make something out of it. Some are too crazy. I've had some very crazy, but I, <laughs> the way I go about it is actually not fair. It's not, it's not, I mean, I think you touch upon a very important thing like trust and safety is also yeah. most, most in many organizations, people don't feel safe. I remember I, I was working with a very large company in one other continent and and they, the top executive team was quite surprised when he did a survey that 80% of the people in the organization didn't feel safe. And they felt it was such a nice group of people. And they had no clue. The reason was very simple, actually. The, the top executive team was very smart. And anybody who had an idea got the fifth degree. They were being, being, being questioned and questioned. So nobody dared to bring anything up and he, because they were afraid they would. Uh, so how to deal with safety, how to get, and it has to do also with the ability of executives to be somewhat vulnerable. I have basically developed some kind of methodology for team intervention, which uh, I have trained so many people doing that, hundreds of people. Um, but basically, it comes down to uh, what I do, to me, at least. I, I first interview everybody of, of the team because I want to have a sense if it's possible. I have, for example, I've worked with some Russian oligarchs who are owners. And basically, forget it. Uh, there was no going to be a team formation there. The, God was floating above all the time, so uh, it was not, they were not going to have any meaningful conversations. But most of, the, most of the times it's possible. And also I want to have a sense of, uh, no surprise, some of the elephants in the room. Mm -hmm. So apart from asking about elephants in the room, it's important to get a sense of what are some of the issues they're struggling with and what is going on. Then I, uh, I have developed, which was an actually defensive act at INSEAD, I developed a number of 360 instruments. The reason I did that, because as you know, uh, uh, coaching is not mass production. You, I, you know, I can teach, I once taught in, in Moscow for 20,000 people. That's my large, largest group, you know, it was in, it was in Moscow, um, Moscow Stadium. Uh, wow. Crazy, it was crazy. I mean, I, uh, it was, I, I, wanted, I, I wanted to do to practice my fear muscle, I guess. <laughs> I, I couldn't see the people at the end. You know, it was, it was endless. But uh, but when you coach, it's it's bricolage. It's a small group, and and of course uh, that's expensive. And you uh, you know when you went try to cascade things down to a large organization, so uh, I try to speed things up a little bit. So the coaches have some work, something to work with, by developing a number of three sixty questionnaires, which now is now very common. But when I started to develop those. Uh, it was quite uncommon. Also, it was quite uncommon in the organizations because I remember the first time I introduced that at our advanced management program, uh, it was okay in Holland, in England actually, the United States, but not in France, for example, because the CEO is a PDG, President Director General, and he only goes <laughs> down. 
Nobody does want any upward information. So 360, you need, if you're going to use 360 in your organization, you need somewhat of a 360 culture. For example, I had once a person, uh, I saw the result of a 360 and I looked at it and said, this is impossible, get perfect scores. So I went to uh, the IT department and said, said, no. And what this gentleman did was, he, uh, he it's all online. So he printed it out, put the names of the people on it, of his team on it, and gave it to them and said, please give it back to me. And not stupid, you know, and you know, stupid. <laughs> in, that, in that particular culture, they were going to tell him what he wanted to hear. So I just laughed at him and said, it's completely useless. So you need, what I'm trying to say is, if you're going to use 360, um, I did it quite a bit with McKinsey actually, and, and, and the part of not just the numbers, but also the, uh, the written comments, they would write love letters to each other, not necessarily positive love letters, but long about how you could improve, they're very good in that. Other, so the written comments are also very interesting. But so the coach has something to work with. And then it's the, 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 the talent of a coach when you have an executive team. I actually I made, I was trying to illustrate my working way and I, I have my own style. And when I train my coaches that you do what you feel most comfortable with, but I'm quite in people's face. I can be, I'm Dutch originally, you know. <laughs> so in my class, they sometimes would say, we're going to talk Dutch now, meaning no more bullshit, let's talk straight. <laughs> so I made actually a video, you can find it somewhere on the web, I think. I, somebody put it on the web, I didn't do it, but in which I, uh, actually what I did was, I wrote a script, got four actors, because I couldn't film it in the real, in the real. But I, it was a script, it was real. It was real, the way I experienced it. And the four actors acted it out, how I do it. And what I do is, uh, I, you know, you need first some kind of uh, icebreaker, right? different icebreakers to that people, although of course they know each other, they work with each other, that they're willing to mellow a little bit. And of mm -hmm. course, some of them are still in shock after they get the results of the 360. So you have to have to calm that down. I basically warn them, you know, that some have got a major narcissistic injury. So my challenge is to reframe things positively uh, because otherwise nothing will happen. And then I want, them, I want to create an environment. So in the beginning, when I start to do that, people would just look at 360. And so there they see I'm a shit. So it's great, yeah, I'm a shit. So what now? That's not very helpful, isn't it? So just getting 360 <laughs> not very useful. So now what I do is I engage in storytelling. I mentioned that in my book, my, one of my last books, not my last book anymore, but it was the one mentioned in the Financial Times, the CEO whisper. Right. Yeah. So the power of storytelling, you're able to, so I ask people, for example, you have the people from McKinsey, the director of McKinsey. And so my curiosity was, why is this person who comes from Cyprus, this person comes from whatever, a little small village in, in Austria, how did he end up as a director at McKinsey? What happened? What went wrong? What went right? <laughs> so tell your story. And it's very powerful because we are basically storytellers. I mean, it was already in Paleolithic times. We sit around the fire and told stories. And if the audience is rather sympathetic, you start to realize I'm not alone in my misery. You know, that's a real something. I'm not the only crazy among them. And so the, the, the trick is, that people are a little bit vulnerable, an element of vulnerability. So they can talk about, you know what, you know, let's face it, leadership is a team sport and nobody puts in everything. So you have to figure out what am I really good at and what, where do you need help? Help. So when you start to talk about it, 
people in the team start to make contracts, quote-unquote, you know, not official contracts, but they start to make how they can help each other. And they start eventually also, you start to break the silos because there are too many barrenness, particularly in top executive teams. Right. And the most important thing is that people sing from the same hymn sheet. And, mm -hmm. and I, I keep on telling executives, it's fine that you have fantastic IT system, you spend tens of millions of dollars in your IT system, but if you don't have your top executive team aligned, I mean, it's a mess. It costs you much more money. And uh, right. so make an investment there, have them aligned, and then you really have true knowledge management. Uh, you know, I mean, we talk about knowledge management, but why you should you exchange knowledge to a person you don't know, don't trust, etc. You have to build, and so to really build a network a network, and so that is what you try to, to, to do. And then, you, of course, you need always a follow-up by field and social workshop because at the end of the workshop, people make, you know, say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to I'm going to do and work on this, I'm, I'm whatever. They have all, yes, the, the New Year's in, New Year's resolutions, and then they forget. So when you have a follow-up workshop a few months later, you said, okay, what have you done? Where are you? So that you might even have two follow-ups. Uh, like in my CEO seminar, I have three sessions. Every session is a week or four and a half days. And then between two and a half months in between. And then I wait for half a year. And I want to see if all those good intentions, if they're really living it. Because, I mean, change is hard. I mean, right. but it, in changing organizations, I mean, structure and strategy are fine. But the most difficult thing is the mindset. And if you talk about yeah. very large organizations, if I can change the mindset, of 50 to 100 people, of the senior people, and then you have it, then you have them in your hand, then you can cascade it down to the middle and the lower level of the organization. Absolutely. But it, need, it, need to be, it needs, of course, also to be a co-creative process that, I mean, people are not, you know, not completely uh, reluctant to change, but they don't like to be changed. They won't have control over it. Right. That, that's amazing points. And you also crossed this. So having the courage to kind of address the elephants so that any single member of that executive team is able to address those in a, in a trusting environment and telling the truth also to the CEO that can be the most scary uh, in the room for everyone. And, and then there is also the Trump style. And it's very common in the leadership teams uh, and without offending Trump, uh, but uh, it's kind of the blame and the judgment. And when things are, are bad on my team, on my sub team, I start uh, attacking the other peers uh, in order to avoid the issues that I have in my own area. And instead of getting together to solve those issues, which are our problems, not my problems, not their problems, it's our problems as executive team, because we are paid to drive results to the organization and to treat everyone with respect. So what are some of the tools that we might use to avoid blame and judgment when we have complex problems to solve? In the first place, I guess, and you mentioned Trump, which has been an, an kind of, an, I, I've written too much about Trump. <laughs> I Trump, Trump is what, I mean, because of the, 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 the disappointment about that, such a large percentage of the American population, or for convenience sake, or didn't see it. But he is really, uh, from a diagnostic point of view, a mixture of a narcissistic personality disorder and a psychopath or sociopath. 
depending on what kind of orientation you have. So that, I mean, I think all leaders have a certain dose of narcissism and I've written much, many books on narcissism and you have some, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a motivation. The question is, and there's always a very delicate balance when you talk about narcissistic behavior between disposition, so the, and position. So very quickly, if you're not careful, being in a senior position can go to your head. And particularly if you don't like to hear, you, you start, you know, you don't like to hear bad news and start to live in an echo chamber. In the case of Trump, when you talk about malignant narcissism, which is the worst form of narcissism, there's also a vindictive element there. So, uh, so then you, then you talk about, you mentioned scapegoating and blaming, it's never you. So there is an incredible lack of self-insight. I mean, when you look at his upbringing and with this father who uh, kept on telling him that he should be a winner, that the world consists of other winners and losers. He saw right. what happened to his older brother who were basically crushed and friendly friendly by his father and died of alcoholism. So, I mean, it uh, was a negative role model. So um, <clears throat> I wrote actually an article, a long article about it. It's going to be in my other, other book, which... Uh, about I call it the little drum boy, drum, drum, actually Trump in German, this is the German, you know, it's a, they come from Germany is drum. But I mean, he had an, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, he became really uh, his father's messenger. And, uh, and of course, what also didn't help in his personality development was this military school. Well, anyhow, I don't mm -hmm. want to go completely doing an, right. doing an clinical assessment of him, but I mean, it's interesting about psychopathic, sociopathic behavior. They, you know, what they do is, of course, you know, they have no conscience. Uh, I mean, that's part of that, the, the empathy, the no empathy. But they also <clears throat> very seductive. They tell you what you like to hear. So they are very good at managing upward. And the people who noticed that kind of person if the people are downward, that's the reason 360s are so useful. So you catch them before it's too late, before they are in the top position, because then it's very hard to get rid of them. I mean, that's uh, so. The, the, it's the, that's the reason I'm a great believer in. In I, I, I think 360s with all their with all their uh, you know their faults, but it's uh, from a developmental point of view, and not for this, you know it, it is helpful. It, uh, but of course, what you have to do to prevent this from happening in the first place that you are very, very careful about the selection of the people in your organization. Mm -hmm. That's for you, and people very quickly, for expedience, they put a person in there. But if you, if you do that right, you prevent a lot of misery later on. And then, of course, I would say, and I see it, for example, with all, um, uh, many of those you know, startup companies, uh, they, would actually, uh, you know, they would actually be helped if they would have some kind of group intervention to get a sense if, the, if they fit in the organization, if they fit in the team. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I remember once for, an, uh, for a company I was asked to write a report about their culture, why the small company became such an incredible multinational company. So I interviewed a lot of people. Was, I had some, some workshops with them before, so I was, not, not, I was quite familiar with the company. And then I, I had to present the report to the executive chairman. And he started, I had already talked to him before, but then he started, he had read my report and started to talk to me. And I didn't understand him. And I'm not completely an idiot. So I, I started to ask myself, how does this person, I mean, 
there were probably, I don't know, 100,000 people working in that organization or something like that. How does he talk to his people? Then I said, you know, I just went to you, I went to the United States and normally, you know, the climate where you are, your head offices is much nicer. And, uh, you know, people would play golf and there I was slushing through the snow. I said, you should thank this man you sent to, uh, to the States for his work. Ah, I said, I don't can do it. I don't do it. That's not me. That's not me. But he had a VP human resources who would run around the world and say, I love you. I love you. I love you. And then I was once in Davos and, uh, you know, at uh, this uh, hot air place there uh, where the World Economic Forum is. And there he was. And behind there was a tall lady walking. And what was she? She was the VP communications. And so he was smart. He knew he was a strategist, a deal maker. That was his real, that was a good at. For the rest, forget it. But he knew that. So you know, you, I mean, this, this, I think 600 years before Christ, there was a man called Thales of Miletus. He was one of the sages of Greece and he was asked what's the most difficult thing in the world. And the answer was, <laughs> Come on, it was written about Samuel of Apollo in ancient Greece too. You you catch at me. So <laughs> know thyself. And that is, I think, why do executives derail? I can tell you why. First place, they don't know themselves. And that's what I try to do with them, to have a sense of what their strengths and weaknesses are. Second, they don't get the best out of their people. I mean, in every day, they don't know yes. people. They don't know what their motivational factors are. And the first thing which I often see after the first week in my seminar is they rush off to the office and have some meaningful conversation with their people, not just looking at a few numbers and then kick, kick them out of the office. Let's have lunch together if they are important people for them. Third, as I, I said, many, and you mentioned that, many executives suffer from another Greek word, hubris. They get yes. so full of themselves and they become like Icarus. You know, uh, they fly too high and burn. And you see it over and over again. Just open the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, every day. I, you know, it, it's the same story. And then, of course, as I said, many executive teams are in a natural act. And many corporate cultures are gulag cultures. So those are the things which are going wrong. And if you want to scale up things, that's the way you have to go. The individual, the couple, the team, and then the culture. And if you have that right, you go places. It, it can turn around an organization. That's what I try to do. I mean, I mean to. Uh, of course, I mean, of course, I, I I deal with lots of senior executives. Why? Because they have the power. I can, of course, tell uh, deal with the first line, you know, people. But they don't have so much power. I want to change organizations, hopefully for the better. I've I introduced the term in the management language, authentizotic, which is basically authentic. is a typical word. It's actually. A, and I made up the word. Oh, then actually, in, I think there's even a person in Portugal. They made even questionnaire about it. I remember. Yeah, <laughs> we're in Portugal, so uh, some kind of a questionnaire about are you an authentic organization? But basically, it comes. It, it's based on two Greek words: authenticos and zoticos. And basically, organizations where you feel alive. And if you think about the Gallup polls, where eighty-five percent of people worldwide they say. I'm not engaged. I mean, what the hell are we doing? If people are not engaged, unless you're a masochist, you don't work very hard, do you? You're not going to <laughs> you're not going to really really make an effort. So what I'm trying to do is to make more humane organizations. You know, and so that is really the kind of work. So to to 
for example, my CEO seminar, whatever I call, you, I call it, um, yeah. as I said also in the interview with Financial Times, you know, maybe around those people, there's 21 people maybe responsible for 100,000 people. If I can make them a little bit more humane and a little bit more effective, who knows? Absolutely. I might contribute to a little bit of a better world. That's great impact. Absolutely. That's, that's the cascading effect, you know, the, uh, yeah. what you talk about. Absolutely. That's, that's a good use and a good return on investment to society over your lifetime, right? That's, that's a very good point. And that's why I love also the, the power of talks, the power of uh, the programs, the power of the books. So you can kind of scale your experience and wisdom so more people can access it because you don't have enough hours. Uh, and do, do people still read? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, now in the mini article. I'm now in the mini article business. Maybe I need YouTube's clips and mini article business because who really reads books? I mean, exactly. I read a lot, I've written a lot of books, far too many. And uh, it's probably for my own pleasure. Maybe it's my, my antidepressant. So I like to write. <laughs> I love it. And, and it's, it's proven that is a good uh, tool to kind of organize and, and uh, heal uh, our own uh, issues. And um, kind of moving forward with a 360 or a feedback culture, I, I, I really uh, enjoyed that. And um, sometimes what I feel because I try to be the guy who tells the truth to, to CEOs, uh, given my kind of perspective and not being reporting to him directly or reporting to them directly and also showing them that I don't depend on them. So I'm just there to help them out, but I'm not dependent economically, financially or leadership wise to them. So I'm, I'm just trying to help them out. And uh, unfortunately I can't choose the CEOs that I work with at this stage of, uh, of my career, and this helps me uh, a lot. But anyway, a lot of CEOs today, your teams can be very polite when collecting feedback, saying when we address the elephant in the rooms, they would say, thank you for, so much for your feedback. I will be processing it, digesting it, and I will act on that. I really appreciate the time and the frontality and the honesty and the candidness. But what I kind of listen, and I see that in the upcoming days, is full of bullshit. It's just following kind of the theory of management that feedback collection is appreciating the feedback, acknowledging the feedback, but you don't need to answer to the feedback. So, and you don't need to act on the, but Mike, on the feedback. But Mike, you have, you have a sense of humor. When you hear that you say, are you, are you really serious about it? Are you really going to do that? I, you know, you have to use a little bit to understand you the story of Bluebeard and his reverse psychology. <laughs> You have, to, you have to be the provocateur a little bit. Are you really going to do it? I don't believe you. You're telling me the story. I mean, is it going to be filed somewhere on that and create dust you and, or you put a task force on it and nothing happens? So what do you plan to do in the coming week? What are you going to do about it? What kind of timeline do you have? Push them. Push right. them. Don't be, don't be, I mean, things you say, I mean, that's of course the problem. I would say you should never be a hungry consultant. Because hungry consultants, exactly. they want to hear. And so nothing happens. I mean, uh, I'm surprised by some of the consulting firms, the kind of contact they are, they're almost there for life as a crutch for a bunch of anxious executives. Because a lot of the ang lot of executives are very anxious. They are fearful. Yeah. I mean, of course, they read, and they read the Financial Times. And I, I got <laughs> called today for, by, by, the, by a journalist about giving my opinion about the corporate governance about the person who just been kicked out. 
So what's what is going on there? I have no idea what's going on there, but I can make some I can make some assumptions. And of course, everybody else reads that. And he said, "My God, when is my turn? Am I giving? Is there is there sufficient return? You know, shareholder value. I'm giving shareholder value, which is of course is abomination, which was originating the Harvard Business School, which is can kill the world. Just shareholder value. It's only one item of the package." Of course, you need to make you, know, you need to make money, but I mean, uh, you need to do more than that. To uh, particularly in this society, and also I think more and more, if you uh, want to recruit younger people who are much more socially conscious, I think than was in the past. They're not such. I guess basically, uh, in, in when I was growing up, you had the psychological contract, and many people signed up for life. I remember once when I graduated from Harvard Business School in my MBA, I was interviewed by Shell. And uh, I mean, it was a Dutch company, so I'm curious about it. I was not serious about the interview, actually, but I at least want to see how it went, so to get some experimental. And it and, and this gentleman told me, you know, after so many years, you'll be there, and you'll be there, and they'll be there, and they'll be there. And I was a young man, and listened to that, said, I don't want person to plan my life. There's too many other factors involved. Everything is planned. And of course, in, in Shell originally and companies like that, they had, you had a psychological contract for life. But now it is uh, much, much more portfolio careers. And, and, and I think companies, I mean, unless you have a big mortgage to pay for and you have to pay your children's tuition fees, which I also have seen that people are really stuck in companies because of that. But you have only one life unless you believe in reincarnation. And you say, yeah. listen, I, I go to work you know, depressed, I don't, people don't get the best out of me. I really want to do something else. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's the reason I think this coaching program at INSEAD, for example, at Master Degree, was so, has been so popular because there's an opportunity for people actually to do their own thing because many executives, to be very frank, have this fantasy to do their own thing, to be in control over their life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a little bit like, um, you know, what are we looking for? I mean, maybe that's a good way of closing some of my comments, but we're looking for meaning. And I wrote a book after, since I, it takes so long for publishers to publish a book, I wrote a book in between called Quo Vadis, original title, you know, it was actually, uh, it's not my title, but I, um, but basically existential issues of executives. And so we all look for meaning. And so what does meaning consist of? Number one, belonging. Belonging, this is famous Harvard study, which is the longest longitudinal study starting in 1938 of a group of Harvard sophomores in which, um, uh, and, and still of the, some people of the cohort are alive. And what was important to them? Close relationships with family and friends. Exactly, there is but a the great- most, Yes, the most important thing in life. And, and in, in, in particular in your stage in life, you sometimes forget it because you're busily making career, but don't ignore those parts of your life. Yeah. Second thing, is purpose. Purpose is future-oriented. What do I want to do with my life? Now, what mm -hmm. is important? I mean, I try to, I try to create better organizations and people who feel better in their skin. That's probably one of my purposes. It is future-oriented. Then you have a sense of um, competence. What are you good at? You know, I. Uh, what am I good at? I mean, take myself. I, I, I learned now a little bit to write. I mean, it took a lot of practice. I used to have more constipation in the beginning phases, but slowly it's, it has become quite easy for me. But it's practice. 
I mean, uh, think about, you know, some people are good in sport. They're physically, some have a real physical intelligence. They're gifted in sport. Other people are very technical. They can really do, I'm totally useless with my hands. But I can, I know I can write and I can also teach. I know how to teach. I, because I had such boring teachers when I was at university. They were so dreary. So I decided never, never, I have to keep people alive. So I do anything, I stand on my hands. So that's competence. Then you have a sense of control, having to do with choice. I mean, lots of things are fate, you think things happen to you, but you have some control. And I mentioned earlier, you know, choice, the most important choices is really usually partner choice and also career choice. And finally, which I added to this little, little uh, this model I have, I don't like models in general because people get stuck in it, but it's transcendence. Now, people work for money, but die for a cause, meaning you have to go beyond yourself, do things, and, and altruism is good for you. When you give, you feel better. When you express mm -hmm. gratitude, you feel better. So it's actually very selfish to be an altruistic, <laughs> paradoxically. But of course, it's a long-term investment in yourself. So those okay. factors, the, basically the sense of belonging, the sense of purpose, the sense of competence, the sense of control, and the sense of transcendence, what makes in the middle of that circle is meaning. And then my book, Covadis, has to do with it. And of course, you look for meaning because we have this cloud, the, 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 stealth, the stealth motivator hanging over us, which is death. We're all going to die because we have those frontal lobes, which is, in, which is an advantage and a disadvantage, so we can predict the future. Well, supposedly animals don't know that, but we know that that's going to happen to us. So as a result, we want to, at least we want to have some kind of little print in life. You can do it in anywhere. It can be your children. It can be, you know, doing a social cause, whatever. I mean, children are very often the ones you want to. And what I ask people very often is what, what kind of values you want to give your children? What's important to you? What's important? What is one of the important? Those are the real existential questions you deal with, which are important. That goes beyond just being in a business. Because we sometimes, you know, we... Um, Sometimes too many people, and I get them by the time it's too late. They have the divorces, the children hate them, et cetera, et cetera. No good relationship. But I mean, uh, you know, try to do some preventive maintenance. Do something about it. And don't get into manic overdrive, running around and trying to just make money. Because money is addictive. It's an addiction. It's like cocaine. It's never enough. There's always somebody richer. Mm -hmm. My father used to say to me, because it was one vice comment I always felt was, you can only eat one steak a day. So, I mean, he liked steak, so I, mean, I, I like fish, but eat one steak a day. And of course, you can always have new needs. You know, first you have your house, you have your car, you want a bigger car, then you might want a boat. <laughs> and, and look at some of the oligarchs, then you want a private airplane. Of course, it beats going, standing in line in, in the airport and going through security. So that it gets... It's never enough. It's never enough. Not enough. And are they happy? No. No. And that's a great point, which is connected um, kind of this point that you talked about the narcissism and um, the need to fill in that all inside uh, of us and of, of CEOs and kind of that cocaine issue that you are saying. That's, it might also be connected, uh, and you know much more about this than myself, um, which is some of the fears that, for instance, Napoleon Hill talks about on the Think and Grow Rich uh, book, namely the fear of aging. So uh, 
they want to really be powerful and very well known and leave a kind of a legacy. But do you see any analogies on why typically CEOs have this tendency to have this kind of personalities? Um, and you also talk about this in the article, namely related to their childhood and their experience. And you also gave the example of Trump in, in that sense today. Yeah, but I mean, the, you know, you need to, you can, I talk about constructive narcissism and destructive narcissism. Exactly. And some people are rather lucky. They have some parents who are rather supportive and they have a good, solid sense of self-esteem and there's some kind of balance. I mean, it's actually, if you want to really go to childhood studies, there is, uh, you probably never read the parable of the uh, hedgehog of Schopenhauer. No, no, probably not. No, this is petty stories. Think about you are a hedgehog. You know, a hedgehog is all the prickles. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cold in the winter. You have two hedgehogs and you want to get warmer. So how close can you get as a hedgehog? If you get too close, you sting the other one. Eh? So it's a, para it's a, it's, it's a parable of uh, attachment behavior. So some people are lucky, and hopefully it's the majority of the population, which have parents who are rather supportive, and they end up with a rather secure sense of self-esteem. And some people are, you know, they don't know if the parent is going to be there. So they become a little bit anxious. So this anxious, anxious attachment. And then you have, some people have given up. It's avoided attachment. So imagine that you have a person with anxious attachments marrying a person with avoidant attachment. So the anxious person is running all the time after the avoidant one. And the avoidant is trying to get away from this person. So it's going to be a match made in heaven. You can see it already. <laughs> but it, but your, your hedgehog behavior, to be a little bit joking about it, very much determines, uh, determines how you relate to other people. It's a very important factor. So coming back to people with some people have to prove the other ones wrong. They are driven by fear, which is I talk about more destructive narcissism. Mm -hmm. And of course, it can be a great motivator, but doesn't make you happy. And of course, thinking about happiness and you now we and when you think about our children, what we want of our children is something maybe somewhat impossible. We want our children to be happy and to be uh, successful. And so this is a very delicate balance because it means you need some good enough parents and some good enough happiness, <laughs> not, not perfection, not perfection. And that's one of the problems, you know, when you think about some, you know, some people who never feel good enough, so they're driven by that. The parents had too high standards; they are too much. They feel always oh, insecure, and so they. But it, 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 in a way, it's also an interesting driver. It's uh, it drives people. But uh, it can have very devastating effect. That's so. That's uh, but there's so many permutations. I can tell you when I was uh, Mike. When I was in your, your age, I knew it all. At this point, this stage in my life, I don't know anymore. Oh. <laughs> all that I get, the less I know. That's a real paradox. And coming back to your aging, which is of course true. I have done a lot of work with family businesses and the succession issues. And there, you, of course, you have the Oedipus revisited. So fathers and sons and the dramas with that and fathers who quote unquote castrate their sons they do somewhat better with their daughters and daughters are more on the front now but still it's an it and of course has to do with letting go aging not being as powerful anymore etc etc and of course the nightmare from people in public corporations which 
after my interview with the FT, I got quite a few people of that who were mentioning, uh, and I've written on it, they didn't know that, I've written on many of those things. Um, you know, when you retire, then you might be still a member of the board or so, but it's not the same as being a CEO, just being on an on advisory board is not the same, you know. People don't dance when you, I mean, when you walk into right. the office, everybody looks how you how you look like. Right. And they take your emotional temperature. And I remember one executive told me, every day I walk into the office, by doing very little, I make, can make a thousand people extremely unhappy. So as <laughs> you're on stage all the time, you should be aware of it. Anyhow, I've talked too much, I'm going, I think our time is almost up. I'm Absolutely. I'm going to let you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Let let me let me just wrap up with uh, with the, our favorite question and, and close the show uh, to respect your time as well. And um, so, if you'd have the opportunity to have um, a conversation with your younger self, uh, Manfred, and kind of people like me uh, that uh, have the ambition to also do something that what you have that you are doing today. As we speak, as we spoke uh, in the beginning, what advice would you offer to your younger self if you would have a coffee with yourself? I'll, I'll give you a contextual answer. Um, my first university, you know, before Harvard, was University of Amsterdam, and I had not been there since 50 years. And normally, I don't volunteer for giving talks. Usually, people come to me and ask me to give a talk. So I decided I haven't been there, I'm just curious. So I wrote a, a note, an email to the Rector Magnificus, which is the president of the university. Said, dear so-and-so, I've not been at the university for 50 years. I would like to give a talk at the Faculty of Economics. And she wrote back to me, said, dear Manfred, uh, you might have forgotten, but I was your student. And as it happens, the dean of the economic faculty is also your student. <laughs> uh, I remember their first name, you know, to be frank. I remember people's first name, but not their, I don't remember their last name so well anymore because I met so thousands of people. So no wonder I was invited to give a talk. That was not much of a problem. So I arrived there and uh, you know, I, I gave a talk on leadership. I was introduced by the dean and who was my student. And of course, I remember him now. He's still the dean there. He was my student. And uh, then I said, you know, I think about 50 years ago uh, when I was much younger and I look at my uh, cohort and what happened to my cohort? Many of them married badly, so they divorced. Many of them became alcoholics. Actually, they drank themselves to death, they dead. Many of them did a terrible job in their career management. And I said, if they only would have had Psychology 101, maybe this may maybe an illusion, but Psychology 101, maybe they may, may have made some lesser mistakes. That was my, so what I'm telling you contextually, <laughs> know thyself. So you're better, you're better in making choices, coming back to one of the elements of meaning. That's my, my advice. Manfred, it was really a pleasure to host you. We learned so much and you are always invited to come again because there is so much to share that we were not able to cover today. Thank you so much for making the time. It was a pleasure. It was nice talking to you. Likewise. And to our community, thanks for being on that side. We keep bringing you the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. See you soon and keep scaling.